0: You're listening to the City World Radio Network. High-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com
1: Good afternoon. Welcome to Intelligent Talk with Ralph McElvenny. Join us every Thursday at 5 p.m. on the City World Radio Network as we discuss topics in politics, art, and current events.
0: Okay, uh, hi, welcome to Intelligent Talk. The website is IntelligentTalk.com. Today's program is focused on uh, who was Jack the Ripper, or Jack the Ripper overall, a famous case, um, 1888, London, uh, Whitechapel area of London, East London where we approximately five prostitutes we think were killed by um, the famous person known as Jack the Ripper We're very pleased to have Mr. Phil O'Connor with us. He's with the Jack the Ripper Museum in London where he gives tours of sites linked to the killer and talks about the case and I was very uh, had the pleasure of going on one of these tours uh, Phil, thank you for coming on the program today It's my pleasure Could you please give the website just for the museum just for people that, and how they might be able to contact you or contact the museum to get a tour with you
1: Absolutely.
0: It's www.jacktherippermuseum.com. Okay, www.jacktherippermuseum.com. And you're Phil O'Connor. Okay, yeah. great. So um, just in, in, in reviewing this case and, and, and understanding it, there's a lot of things that I learned from your tour, and I just want to take the basics. It's it's 1888. We think five people were killed by Jack the Ripper. Is that right?
1: Well, yes, it's interesting. You're In your introduction there you said approximately five people um there are five um women who we are pretty certain were definitely killed by jack the ripper but there's the potential for a sixth and possibly a seventh and eighth we just don't know that's what makes it part of the mystery of uh, has made it such a mystery jack the ripper
0: Yes, and when I was going on the tour with you and you showed me those photos, it's just, I mean, you hear about it, but seeing those photos that you had of the killing, it's just unbelievably brutal. I would think it's probably more brutal than the Manson killings in California. It's hard to get more brutal than what he did, even though this was supposedly the civilized, you know, 19th century. Um, And just in looking at um, the area, one of the things in catching Jack the Ripper is a distinction between the city of London and London itself. And could you just explain, please, that distinction and how that made it hard to to capture how it made the case more complicated,
1: uh, I can absolutely. So, so the City of London is a uh, a small um, area in the middle of London. It's the original London. So, when the Romans um, invaded in AD forty three, uh, they built um, uh, walls around this settlement, which they called Lond or Londinium, um, and uh, that remains its own entity within London. So the City of London uh, is very different to London. London has expanded all the way around it, but it has its own rules and regulations, it has its own police force. So the City of London police, police the City of London, and London is policed by the Metropolitan Police. And the two police forces back in 1888 really didn't get on very well. There was a lot of envy, a lot of rivalry. Uh, They just... Didn't work well together.
0: Okay, and and presumably, the killer knew that because he would like, he would do things that sort of blurred the jurisdictions to make it difficult as who was in charge. Correct? Is that right?
1: Well, I, I, it, it definitely appears that way. On uh, September the thirtieth, eighteen eighty-eight. That's the night of the double event. So Jack the Ripper claimed two victims that night, one in Whitechapel in London and one in Mitre Square, which is in the city of London. And it seems very clear that he, having successfully murdered somebody in uh, Elizabeth Stride in Whitechapel um, in the early hours of the morning, but not able to murder her the way he has with his signature style of ripping through the neck and then ripping through the body. Um, he then goes to the city of London where he knows he can create more confusion, bring the two police forces into loggerheads, and uh, help to uh, aid his escape after murdering his second victim.
0: So was that, was that his normal modus operandi, is, is to do the killing you of the neck and then the body? Was that generally how he did it?
1: So, uh, yeah, every victim of his, if we only count the five conical victims of Jack the Ripper, every victim dies by having their throat cut. Only four of them then have their bodies ripped open. Uh, Elizabeth Stride, who I just mentioned, she dies just from having a throat cut.
0: Okay. Um, all right, and one of the things I want to discuss, too, is just discuss these poor women and just the, the life that they let in. You were gave me that fascinating tour and we talked about some of the social conditions and you told me for example like the cost of, of staying in lodges and why these women were basically desperate to get off the street but even in these hotels and lodges around the area it was no it was no rich hotel and you you told me the origin for example of the word hanging around could you just discuss that a little bit and just like the different fees for you know, the nightly lodgings and the origin of the word hanging around it, it's the,
1: the word is hangover rather hangover. than Sorry. hanging around <laughs> that's okay the um so, so, Whitechapel, the Whitechapel area, east end of London, was very destitute. It was a huge amount of poverty, and uh, London had, you know, been growing at a huge rate um, due to the Industrial Revolution. But by the 1880s, it was coming under um, strain from America doing better, Germany doing better. So its place in the world market was starting to decline, and certainly growth the rapid growth it had had in the previous decades was declining Um, the east end of London was a hotbed for immigration in the 1850s 1860s the Irish population had been coming um, escaping the, uh, the great famine and in the 1870s and early 1880s, the Jewish population was heading to um, Whitechapel, uh, escaping the Russian pogroms. So there was a huge amount of poverty, a huge amount of poor people. Now, women had a quite a specific problem. They, they were unlikely to have employment. And if they did have employment, it was very, very basic. It was mainly around uh, sewing um, items or uh, potentially selling um, posies of flowers and the like. They were normally kept by their husbands. So when their husbands left them or they died or they were separated, women fell into very, very hard times. And they invariably turned to prostitution, not necessarily professionally, not as you know, their only source of income, but as a way of making money, making ends meet. So it was a very, very hard life for women back then. But you asked about the um, sleeping arrangements. So there was about 250,000 people living in Whitechapel um, at the time. Uh, Accommodation was very much at a premium. And there were about 15,000 people a night having to sleep on the streets. Now, there was uh, obviously rooms that people, there were houses that people could buy if they had the money, there were rooms that people could rent, but there were also DOS houses. Now DOS houses were basically uh, large rooms, dormitories, which were just crammed with beds. And for four pence each night, you could turn up, hand over your four pence and you would get a bed for the night. Now I remember the photos that I showed you, and people can check this online, literally looked like open coffins just lined up alongside each other it's looking back now it's disgraceful but um at the time uh, it was you know some form at least some form of getting them off the street now for four pence you would get one of these open coffins or in a slightly more um upmarket um DOS house you might get an actual bed If you didn't have four pence for two pence, you could sit on a bench and have a piece of string tied around you um, to hold you up. And if you didn't have two pence, if you only had a penny, you could go into a DOS house, there would be a piece of rope tied from one side of the room to the other side of the room, and you would literally hang over this rope, you know, over underneath your armpits. And that's how you would sleep for the night. Now, that would be an incredibly uncomfortable... um, You would probably wake up feeling as though you hadn't slept. And this term became associated with um, alcohol, which it is now. So when you've had a huge amount of alcohol, you wake up in the morning feeling, you know, you've got a hangover. And you would probably feel as bad as the people... Um, felt when they were sleeping over the rope, hanging over the rope, back in the 1880s.
0: Yes, that's that's fascinating. I just wanted to go through that because I want people just to understand how difficult the conditions were and in a sense it was society's fault to a degree that these women were really out there having to do this because there's really not other opportunities for them. So you have very difficult conditions in a society. You have Women that really have very little option to uh, bring in money—they're if they're not married to a wealthy husband—and and they're working women. Uh, and then you have this person that comes along, and does these terrible things. As far as the main suspects, I just obviously there's endless amount of suspects that people have, but just to go through a few of them. Um, one of them was, was a famous painter. It's Walter Sickert, I believe, right?
1: Walter Sickert. Yes, yes he was a German artist. He was about forty-two in 1888, um, and. Almost certainly not Jack the Ripper. But he gets associated with the case because he's got a huge fascination with Jack the Ripper. Okay. He paints he paints women as though they've been murdered by Jack. He has them lying on beds and lying on chaise lounge and lying in positions where looking as though their throats have been cut. And he's just got this complete fascination with him. And he claims that he moved into a room which was previously lodged in by Jack the Ripper. So his his fascination just continues on throughout the story, but I don't think anybody really believes he is Jack.
0: Okay, just a few more. Um, one of the really the famous ones is the Duke of Clarence. Could you just briefly discuss that?
1: So, um, <laughs> absolutely. So I have to be very careful what I say here, but um, Prince Albert, um, Queen Victoria's grandson, um, the Duke of Clarence, as you rightly point out, he um, he's always been associated with these murders because um, he, he was a well-known lover of prostitutes. And, in fact, he catches an STD, he catches syphilis, which sends him insane and eventually kills him. Mm-hmm. And many people believe that he um, uh, was Jack the Ripper getting revenge against the women who gave him the disease.
0: I see. Okay. Um, But there's really, there's not much evidence for him, correct? I mean, besides just that.
1: There's not a lot of evidence for him. But if you remember my my wrap up, um, and again, I'm really not claiming that he is Jack the Ripper, but London keeps this story very, very quiet. And the Home Office um, have refused to release the Jack the Ripper papers with all of the evidence that the police collected. So you have to question perhaps why. Why would they hold on to all this information? Why wouldn't they release it into the public domain? And the only person who needs protecting in all of the Jack the Ripper story is Prince Albert. Yeah,
0: but that's fascinating, so
1: you can, But it is, it's a huge leap to say that they don't release the papers, so it must be him. Okay, I'm not suggesting that.
0: I just want to discuss two more. Um, uh, Aaron Kaczynski and then uh, Francis Tumblety, the, the American. But as far as um, Aaron Kaczynski, he was a Polish barber in that area. I believe he was Jewish. And there was uh, some um, papers uh, recently, some news that supposedly his DNA was linked to a shawl that I guess was on one of the women. But then it was criticized and they said, well, there was no evidence of the chain of evidence of where the shawl was and there hasn't been a peer reviewed DNA analysis. So could you just discuss uh, Aaron Kaczynski and what you think about that?
1: Yeah, so Aaron Kaczynski—he's very interesting. Um, the police absolutely believed um, that he was the suspect long before DNA um, uh, evidence uh, came. You know, that, that was a hundred years later. At the time, they absolutely believed that Aaron Kaczynski was their man. They believed that whoever was carrying out the murders was going gradually insane. You can tell by the—if you look at the. Uh, The murders that have been carried out, they're getting progressively worse, um, progressively brutal, and they say whoever's doing it is going mad. And Aaron Kuzminski, after the last murder takes place, a while after, it's a good year, 18 months after the last murder, goes insane and gets committed to London Coney, which is a big, um, was a big um, mental institution in North London. Now, the police quizzed him at great length. He lived another, well, uh, 20 years after um, being incarcerated, and at no point did he give any indication whatsoever that he knew anything about these murders. He never showed any signs of violence towards anybody. Um, So it's very hard to pinpoint him. But as you rightly say, a shawl was found um, by the body of Catherine Eddowes, a silk shawl, and... um, This was never washed, uh, apparently, and in the 1990s, some DNA testing was done of it, and Aaron Kuzminski's DNA turned up on the shawl. So the police, where they've indicated 100 years after the murder, they believed it was him, and maybe the proof came to say, yes, it was him.
0: Okay. Is that the official police view now? No, no. Okay.
1: So no, the police don't have the police don't have a view. Okay. Now they regard the case as closed. They're not going to reopen it. They say there's nothing um, can be gained um, from it. Uh, it's just you know it's just going to continue to be a mystery, and it will be a mystery until they release all
0: of the evidence that they have, which we're told is not going to happen. It's kind of a little bit like the Kennedy assassination. They just recently released a lot of those files, and some of them are still being held. And that's, of course. Uh Fifty years ago, and this is over a hundred years ago, so it's amazing. Uh, right?
1: Absolutely, it is. Yeah. Um,
0: and final person uh, is the most intriguing, I think, from I know from our discussions. But Francis Tumblety, could you just describe who that was, please?
1: So Francis Tumblety is an American. Um, he's a he's a doctor of herbology, so a bit of a quack doctor. Um, a very wealthy man, a um, and definitely a misogynist. Um, he does not take kindly to uh, women who uh, work in prostitution. Um, There's all sorts of stories about him. He was arrested for a lewd act in uh, early November uh, 1888. And many people rule him out of being Jack the Ripper because they believe when he was arrested, he was held in jail. But he wasn't. He was released on bail. And so therefore, he was out and available to carry out the murders on every single night that a murder took place, including the last one, um, Mary Kelly, on the 9th of November. And um, once he was released, once he was out on bail, he did a runner. He ran to France. He ran to Boulogne. And then he got a boat from Boulogne back to America. Now. Many people say that he used to hold dinner parties and at his dinner parties he would show off his collection of medical curiosities and one of these was a cabinet containing glass jars with women's uteruses in them, women's wombs. Now, some people say that perhaps Francis Tumblety was Jack the Ripper because he was murdering women on the streets of London to add to his collection.
0: Right. Now, I just want to – I, I, I know where you lean in this, and i, I know you can get as definitive as, as you would like in, the, in this program. But just to um, – in, in researching for this program, there's a person I'm sure you know, um, know, Stuart Evans, who was a former London police person for 40 years. I spent 40 years on this case, and he found something called the Littlefield letter, which, as I understand it, he was the head of the special branch, Scotland Yard. and He mentioned Tumblety um, as a suspect at that time, and that, that letter was lost, and just recently – came out, um, so that was, a, to him, a very powerful um, evidence that it was Tumblety. He also uh, said the murder stopped when uh, uh, Tumblety left London, uh, as you yep. did. He, he mentioned that thing about the, the police record, but he wasn't in jail uh, when these occurred. And, and finally, um, and one of the, it's one of the most intriguing pieces of evidence, and you told me about it when I was on the tour, and could you please discuss the two, the two rings that were f- allegedly found in his estate and versus uh, linking it to one of the women, which is probably the strongest evidence?
1: Yeah, absolutely. This is the bit that I just cannot get round. Um, I, I haven't found anybody who can justify or explain this. So, Francis Tumblety was a very wealthy man. And uh, when he died back in America, they did a full um, asset list of his estate. And he had, you know, several thousand dollars worth of bonds. He had some very expensive jewelry. But he also had two very cheap gold rings these were valued at about somewhere between one and two pounds each so really you know, not very expensive these two rings absolutely matched the descriptions of two rings that had been taken from annie chapman who was victim number two of jack the ripper so she was known for having these rings all her friends identified her for these rings so they must have had some sentimental value to her because even though they're only a pound or two, that's money. So she would have been able to pawn them, she would have been able to sell them, but she didn't. She was known for having the rings. And when she died, the rings were missing. Her friends recognised that the rings were not on her, and these rings eventually end up in Francis Tumblety's estate in America. It's very odd, and I just can't see past past him because of that
0: and and we're we know the rings ended up because was there an estate um administration of his estate that's how they were they itemized and and we know that they're similar to this woman because because of the description is that basically the the link
1: yeah, absolutely, yeah, so we don't know we don't know for certain that they're the same rings, but it's very unusual that he would have two very cheap rings cheap gold rings in amongst his uh you know his his much more expensive jewellery, which is listed,
0: and also Stuart Evans, um, the person I mentioned who found that letter from the head of, of Special Branch Scotland. You are linking uh, Tumblete to these crimes, said that um, there were there was some allegation that he'd gone to Central America and did more of these killings, and that needed to be explored and perhaps other crimes that, that have yet to be solved that he may have done, too. So there was even um, some other intriguing things that, that he mentioned. But, but yeah, that's a pretty um, – and then there, there was another thing that he mentioned, too, that maybe the police were embarrassed by having let him go, and that's one of the reasons why they never asked for an extradition. Do you remember anything about that? About?
1: Well, it, it, it's, the, the police must have had their suspicions because they did notify the New York police um, about Francis Tomlety when they – Realized he'd skipped bail and had headed back to America. So they did inform New York, and New York put an inspector following him or investigating him, which is very unusual. If he's right. an innocent man, why would you do that? Right. So, yes, he wasn't innocent totally because obviously he'd been arrested for loose behaviour in the UK, but I'm not sure if that's a notifiable um, uh, crime, you know, loose lose, behaviour. Um, so I think maybe the Police did have their suspicions of just what a serious threat this um, Francis Tumblety was.
0: Yes, and, um, and he was, but he he never, of course, answered for the crime, and um, he died. And the British never did ask for extradition. I don't believe he was followed, as you said. Um, and then they found these these rings, and um, and the files are still sealed. I mean, w- were any of the files released, or are most of them still sealed to this day?
1: No, they're all sealed. They're all sealed. They're all held in the, uh, apparently they're all held in the Black Museum, um, which is in Scotland Yard, which is only accessible by uh, invitation only. Um, and you have to be a member of the British police force to be able to get in. So it's not a museum that's open to uh, to the general public. Um, and there's no real proper explanation as to why they won't release any of the stuff. But there there is a lot of information in the public domain because obviously it was covered by the newspapers and uh, we have the coroner's reports. Everything that was put into the public domain is uh, has been scanned and used by Ripperologists over the decades to come up with their own versions of who Jack the Ripper was and what he actually did. But we know that the police have a lot more information, Gosh, and until until we see that, we're just never going to really know.
0: That's just uh, that's very intriguing. That 130 years later, they would have all this um, still unreleased. Well, um, Phil O'Connor, and it's the Jack the Ripper Museum. It's jacktherippermuseum.org or dot .com? .com. com. Jacktherippermuseum.com, yeah. Phil O'Connor. Um, I recommend everyone um, take the tour and take the tour with you. It was very informative and got me interested in doing this program. And thank you so much, Phil, for coming on today. I, I very much appreciate your time. It's
1: absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Thank you. Have a good day. Bye
1: bye-bye. Too.